Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It's Kate Sisk. Hey, everybody. It's me, Kate Sisk, the cancel coach, the fat in the chat. I am a white, bisexual, lesbian dyke. I refuse the box. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm gender non-conforming, any pronouns. My gender of the week, as submitted by the listeners, is Wally the Green Monster, the Red Sox mascot, which I love. As they said, that's Kate Sisk. Kate, among other things, identifies as a comedian and podcast host of the show We're Having Gay Sex. At the beginning of every episode, Kate and co-host Ashley introduce themselves with whatever identifiers they want. And every week, Kate takes on a new gender identity suggested by listeners. Uh, I trust that means more than just male or female? Yeah, uh, my personal favorite is actually three raccoons in a trench coat. Okay, so that adds a certain flavor. I'm Leah Rechtman. And I'm Andrew Middleton. This is Measure for Measure, a little show sizing up our world. This episode looks at the drive to find a measure for sexuality. Kate's gender identity is a longstanding bit on the show, but the joke also reflects Kate's ongoing journey of exploration in terms of gender pronouns and presentation. Here's Kate again. I asked them why they invoke this long list of identities at the beginning of every episode. When you're restricted to words only, you have to fill in a lot of work that your appearance usually does. Um, So if I'm saying, oh, yeah, I don't use words as much because I'm like very visibly queer. If you're only listening to me, you you might not know that. Um, So I have to kind of fill in that gap with with language. So you're totally right that I'm I'm reaching for these kind of um, terms and measurements to put myself in a context that my body and clothes and face and mannerisms usually would. So when Kate says that they use their body and clothes and face and mannerisms to express a gender identity, what are some of the more podcast-friendly words that we can talk about? Yeah, uh, beanie. (laughs) I would say is a podcast-friendly word that I think Kate would approve of in terms of gender identity. Like the hat. Yeah, like a hat. Okay. Gays love a hat. 
Andrew. <laughs> Speaking as a member of the community myself, you know, we're literally, I'm sitting right now under my, uh, my set of hats. So gays love a hat to express themselves. Okay. You wanted something, I think, a bit more specific, like butch or femme or something like that. I'm not going to give you that. Beanie is well, what I'll go with. I am, I am thrilled that this world is so much more expansive than I anticipated. Right. So, I mean, speaking exactly to that, today we have this wealth of terminology to describe attraction, appearance, and community. But that wasn't always the case. The last century has seen an explosion of questions and, wait for it, Andrew, measurements of sex and sexuality. Oh, I can't wait. Hello, I'm Dr. Alfred Kinsey from Indiana University, and I'm making a study of sex behavior. Just to clarify for you and for our listeners, that is not actually Dr. Kinsey. That is Liam Neeson playing Alfred Kinsey in a 2004 movie of the same name. Which was a pretty solid movie. Yeah, pretty solid movie. Watched it to prepare for this episode. Had you previously seen it? Uh, when I was a teenager, I saw it with my parents, and it was a little bit weird. Yeah, I bet that was weird for you. Um, right, so if, if you're not familiar already with Alfred Kinsey, Kinsey was a scientist who studied and published on the behavior of insects at Indiana University. The story of how Kinsey came to study human sexuality is, is kind of the stuff of American legend, especially for those of us in the queer community. I love this. It's like Paul Bunyan and like... Yeah, Kinsey was sort of seeding data, you know, across the United States. Uh, the, the Johnny Appleseed of scientists. Uh, that I definitely thought they were the same person, so <laughs> thanks for clarifying. Basically, it seems like Kinsey stumbled into this study on human sexuality because he started hearing assumptions as a professor when he was working with students. They came to him with all sorts of questions about sex and desire and sexuality that seemed really overly conservative to him. He, he had sort of a more laissez-faire attitude himself. He was married and had a wife, but he had some sort of uh, bisexual desires and fantasies personally. And so he, he brought this more progressive attitude to his students, uh, but he was a scientist and he wanted to be able to back that up with data. Mm. So he had a he had a hunch and he wanted to explore that. Right. And I think sort of more on an ethical level, Kinsey wanted to help his students and himself find answers to the key question we often have when engaging in sex and sexuality, which is, am I normal? So in order to answer the question, as one does, Kinsey undertakes a nationwide study. His study interviews over 5,000 men, 6,000 women. Really importantly, he didn't just interview white and middle class uh, Midwestern college students, which was mostly the population he was surrounded by at Indiana University. Instead, he travels the country for interviews. He includes people who are incarcerated for sex and gender-based crimes like pedophilia and public nudity and rape and incest, but also people who are incarcerated for all sorts of other reasons. Wow. So it sounds like he was pretty thorough. Um, what's his, uh, his Tumblr? I should follow this guy. Yeah. So this is the, what, 1950s? So Ooh, okay, yeah, Kinsey Kinsey has left us. Um, in addition to interviewing incarcerated people, he also interviewed sex workers and a lot of gay men. In some ways, I think, sort of looking back at this study, this was a way for Kinsey, the scientist, to sort of build a world for himself in his research. Right, like he was someone experiencing homoerotic desire, and he created a project for himself that required him to spend a lot of time in gay bars. I mean, that sounds pretty convenient. Like make make your studies about the things that you love, right? Right. I mean, they often say in academia, build the world you're looking for. You know. Mm -hmm. Um. So I think that that's kind of what he was doing. I I do want to add a caveat here. Um, we are a science adjacent show in a lot of ways and we cite science and research. Kinsey's methods were really widely criticized by his peers later. So 
this was not shockingly the most scientific study. Okay, that is that is a little bit disappointing. Uh, I guess we got to go back to the gay bars. Yeah, we, we got to hit the bars, I think. In an attempt to anonymize his informants and um, and sort of an attempt to, to produce really cutting-edge research on the eve of the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s, Kinsey, Kinsey had some fumbling scientific moments. Okay, so basically there are two big issues. One is that he has seven different interviews with pedophiles. Amazing. We don't really understand the psychology of the pedophile at this time. There's a lot of interesting things to say about pedophilia, why that happens, how we treat people who have been labeled pedophiles. The problem with Kinsey's seven pedophiles is that they're actually one person. And in order to anonymize the data, he's splitting that one person's really long interview into seven shorter interviews. Ooh, so in our in our pursuit of, of protecting our subjects, we're also really skewing our data here. Right, that's exactly it. And um, he makes it seem like there are trends when actually it's like one person's experience. The other pretty problematic thing that he does is take a really free love attitude to his work. Uh, so Kinsey really wanted to, to get into the nitty gritty on human sexuality. And so it, more than just interviewing people, he kind of wanted to see it for himself, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, don't we all? So Kinsey set up a, a studio for himself in his in his attic, I think, where he lived with his wife. And uh, he brought his students in to examine people having sex and orgasming. Oh, uh, that that's not going to pass an ethics review board these days. No, no, no. It certainly yeah. isn't. And more than that, Kinsey also engaged in sex with his students on video for the purposes of, quote, research. Alfred, Alfred, Alfred. Right. So yeah, so that's just Kinsey. I'm going to talk a lot about the importance of his work, and eventually we're going to get back to Kate Sisk um, and the three raccoons in a trench coat situation. But before we do, I did want to caveat the research and data that we're talking about in that way. Okay, so Alfred Kinsey, a uh, pioneer, a uh, flawed... Um, flawed. <laughs> maybe we want to maybe we want to put a little bit of an asterisk next to some of his numbers, but we're going to use this as a jumping off point to discuss other things. Yeah, that's exactly right. I do want to situate us. You asked earlier, you know, can I get on his Tumblr? And I want to put us in the time frame, right? So 1948 is the end of World War II. It's also the year that anti-communist and anti-gay panic starts really sweeping the United States. It goes from sort of an enemy abroad to an enemy at home, and the enemy at home is the gay man, basically. Right. So I've, I've heard this called as the lavender scare as the accompaniment to the anti-communist red scare. Yes, exactly. Red Scare, Lavender Scare happening at once, late 1940s. Um, the House Un-American Activity Commission under McCarthy is the first televised congressional hearing. Question is, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I'm framing my answer in the only way in which any American citizen can frame his then answer you denied, to question then you... invades his... So it's the same year that Alfred Kinsey publishes his research under the title Sexual Behavior in the Human Male. And this is a Liam Neeson quote again. I've learned that the gap between what we assume people do sexually and what they actually do is enormous. Despite how thick and data heavy this report is when it's published, Kinsey's report is an immediate bestseller. I guess uh, sex sells. Sex sells. At the time of its publication, premarital sex was a felony in some states. Oral sex is an imprisonable offense, and homosexuality, well, we know that being gay was categorized as a psychological illness. And then there's Kinsey's report. 
So Kinsey finds that many, actually most men, were having premarital sex. Many men and some women had sex with other people during their marriages. And just as a caveat, Kinsey says that men are much more likely to have extramarital sex than women. But once women start working outside of the home in the subsequent decades, the rates of extramarital sex by women begin to match the rates of extramarital sex by men. Equality. <laughs> and as for homosexuality, what Kinsey shows us is that there are a lot more gay people than scientists thought. Kinsey took a mirror to the American public. He asks us, how can masturbation and premarital sex and homosexuality be disordered if it's so statistically common? Kinsey wrote that his research relied on the idea that there's a morality in numbers. So exactly like we were talking about, by Kinsey's reasoning, if so many people are doing something, then can it be all that bad? People who had same-sex desire or behavior had previously been seen as unique cases of illness. But then Kinsey's report shows that some amount of homosexuality is, is fairly common. This kind of reminds me of lactose intolerance. It's like it's a condition that we call lactose intolerance, but it turns out that more people in the world are lactose intolerant. So maybe the condition is not lactose intolerance. Maybe the condition is lactose tolerance. I like that. I wish that the condition were heterosexuality, but unfortunately, even Kinsey showed that homosexuality was a minority position. <laughs> okay, so maybe not the best example. I mean, I like that conceptually a lot. No, I think that's helpful. And it's it's norming, right? It's about like mm -hmm. what we're considering as normal versus what we're considering as an illness, as totally maladaptive to the society. So Kinsey doesn't see homosexuality as an illness. He also doesn't think of it as a binary. Kinsey saw that there could be people who felt equally attracted to women and men. And, and this is a real innovation of his work. Kinsey didn't ask people if they were gay or straight. He asked them to rate themselves on a scale of zero to six. And on a scale of zero to six, he would rate someone who identified as attracted equally to men and women as a three. Someone who felt most attracted to the same gender but occasionally attracted to the opposite gender would be a five. So that's like a pretty gay person. And someone who felt attracted mostly to people of the opposite gender would be a two or a one. So this is just good sociological science where you don't want to you don't want to prime your subjects with categories that they can fit themselves into. If you give people a range, then they can put themselves onto it. I think that's a really good point and a really good example of how Kinsey's coming to this as a scientist first in a, in a really important way. So Kinsey's doing two really important things here, right? He is saying that um, there are more gay people than we thought and that there are more ways to be gay than we thought. So He's validating, oh, you have sexual desire or fantasies, but haven't had like behaviors with someone of the same sex as you, or you have had sexual behaviors with men, but also with women. Like both of those things count. One doesn't counteract the other. Also, really importantly, and this is something I just learned doing research for this episode, the zero on the Kinsey scale is for asexual people, people who don't have interest in sexual behavior. Wow, that feels like a, something that I guess the culture is sort of rediscovering more recently. Yeah, I mean, I think that exactly like you're saying as a scientist, he's saying, OK, well, many of the questions he had are a spectrum and one of the answers is null set. Or like in the census, there are different categories for racial identities that one might identify with. But it's important to have that blank on there to say, like, well, if we missed you, write your own in. Right. He's just adding a little bit of flexibility to the question. 
And in doing this, Kinsey's telling all sorts of people that they aren't alone. If they're masturbating or sleeping with people of the same gender or having sex before marriage or fantasizing about both men and women, they're like so many other Americans. And this measurement and the other statistics in the Kinsey Report become a key to unlocking sexual freedom for many, many people. I mean, this is the moment before free love and gay liberation and everything that the 1960s was about, really. But we're also talking about the 1940s and, and one-man system. Kinsey missed a lot. I think I can already see some some gaps that are forming here. Right, like obviously now as an adult looking at the Kinsey scale, it's like, well, I don't know if this fits my own experience. Right, like how would Kate's three raccoons in a trench coat fit into this? Right, is three raccoons in a trench coat a homosexual identity, a heterosexual identity? What is the opposite gender of three raccoons in a trench coat? Exactly. So under the Kinsey scale, you have to be either male or female. Homosexual desire for a man is about being attracted to another man, a man of the same gender. Heterosexual desire is about being attracted to someone of the hetero gender, a different gender, a woman in this case. But for someone with a non-binary gender, that terminology just doesn't make sense. Here's Kate again. If you are taking like a really gender expansive view of the world, then finding someone who's the same gender as you is probably impossible. <laughs> and saying simply that somebody is a different gender than me, like would describe everyone. <laughs> so it's funny as you try to make the language more inclusive, it's less capable of doing the measuring that you set out to do in the first place. So exactly like you predicted, Andrew, Kate can't really place themselves on the Kinsey scale. Since they're non-binary, there isn't a Kinsey 6, a same-sex category for them. Similarly, what would the opposite of non-binary be? Just binary? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't quite work. The 1 through 6 scale that was so meaningful when the Kinsey report was released doesn't sufficiently summarize the experience of sexualities of non-binary people or those attracted to non-binary people, right? I identify as a cisgender woman, but many people I've dated are non-binary. So where does that put me on the Kinsey scale? It's not really clear. So is the solution to add more axes to this chart? You know, we have we have a one axis chart from from 0 to 6. Do we just need to add like a second or a third or a fourth or a fifth, like how many, how can we model? So yeah, since the Kinsey scale, there have been many, many attempts at measuring human sexuality. The Klein grid is a two-dimensional version. So instead of a A to B spectrum, it has many options in a grid form. Okay. So in instead of being linear between two values, it's comparing two separate axes. So it's like, it's like a, a graph. Right, and, and, and the axes that Klein is engaging with are time and behavior. Ooh, so you could see how someone's sexuality might evolve over time. Mm -hmm. The three columns are past, present, and ideal. Ooh, interesting. Okay, so it, not, not only in time, but also like in hypothetical futures. Right, and it engages on the, on the y-axis, so on the horizontal rows mm -hmm. with everything from behavior to fantasy, but also to community and identity. So today there are people who identify, for example, as lesbian, but non-binary. So their identity is non-binary, but their community is lesbian. Mm, wow. This is getting really, really complicated. I don't, this is, it's going to be a very interesting scale that fits all the stuff in there. 
Right. Um, yeah, I feel like this is a lot, so <laughs> everyone buckle up. The, the Klein grid alleviates some of the problems of the Kinsey scale, but not all of them. Both the Kinsey scale and the Klein grid assume that gender is the only basis on which we could find people attractive. Do you really like blondes or folks who wear leather or guitar players? You may not fit on the Kinsey scale either. Here's Kate again. I was, I was talking to someone who was a, a peer of mine, and he has a strong preference for bears. Um, like true bears, like, like older than him. Just as a translation, a bear is a commonly used term in American gay culture for larger and hairier men. There are bear-specific events and parties in the gay community and even a flag with the bear footprint on the corner. Uh, nice and big and round, hairy, and, um, you know, he described th that part of his sexuality as like an immovable part of his sexuality. And that, it, and that made me step back and be like, oh, so that's like an orientation. Okay, great, I've got the words. You're attracted to bears. <laughs> Now let's apply that to everyone. <laughs> it's like impossible. You, you run out of terms, like you run out of scales. Kinsey brought numbers and measurement to sexual desire and behavior to psychologists and lawmakers who previously were able to assume that queerness was wrong or sick or outlandish. Kinsey showed them the data. He demonstrated that lots of women and men were attracted to the people of the same gender and masturbated and had pre and extramarital sex. In these ways, the Kinsey scale of human sexuality included many people who weren't just homosexual as people who had same-sex desire or experiences or attraction. He sort of liberated all of bisexuality and queerness. But the Kinsey scale also divides us. It leaves out people who don't sit neatly in two genders and people who have attraction not based on gender at all. I do think that younger people feel a lot more freedom to go on that journey of self-discovery a lot earlier in life, which is beautiful and something that I think, you know, generations have been working towards. I'm grateful to the generations who came before me to make it easier for me. So I'm glad that they're having such an easy time kind of <laughs> going through the internet and talking to friends and figuring out their words that make them feel seen and comfortable, first and foremost, by their, their families and their school communities and their online communities, but I do hope that no one pegs themselves into a hole as a result of, of the kind of security and maybe joy that these words can offer them at this point in their life. Like, I, I would hope that as we do all this different measuring and, and labeling and, and grouping together and strength in numbers and, and then subdividing to make sure we're taking care of everyone, I hope that everyone remembers Something from the Klein grid, which is that there's a past, present, and an ideal. And, and something from the Kinsey scale, which is you can always move forward and backward and jump off the scale. <laughs> Kinsey was working at a time when homosexuality was considered by many to be a disease. He was measuring human experiences of sexuality and taking those experiences seriously. He put the sexualities of the majority into data numbers that scientists could understand and contend with, but information that queer people already knew. Kinsey's scale changed the game. He gave us a spectrum, and in doing so, functionally brought bisexuality and other queer sexual identities into language, into measurement. But sexuality is not as simple as two poles and the space between them. It's ultimately less of a spectrum, a measuring stick between zero and six, 
it's more of a cloud or a fog of identities and experiences. Measure for Measure is a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. The show is executive produced by me, Leah Rechtman, created by Andrew Middleton, and sound engineered by Greg Friedel. Our music is by Siraj Sintu and Mackenzie Kugel. Thanks, as always, to Zachary Davis for his support. And special thanks this episode to Kate Sisk. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can learn more on our website, ministryofideas.org slash measure, or find us on Twitter at Measure4M and Instagram at Measure4MeasurePod. That's with the number four. You can also email us at MeasureForMeasurePod at gmail.com. That's MeasureForMeasure with the number four. Thanks for listening. See you next time. According to the Kinsey Report, every average man you know much prefers his lovey-dovey to court when the temperature is low. But when the thermometer goes...